It's good to see everybody. Today, we are just one study away from finishing our journey through Galatians. It's taken us approximately six months. I think we started in the either the end of October or the first of November, uh, first part of November. So it's been uh, quite a journey. Uh, I think it's been a helpful journey through Galatians. And these last couple of studies are also, I think, uh, just very important in tying everything together. So we read the final verses here together today, and we're going to focus on uh, verse 14 ultimately, but I want to look at uh, verse verses 11, 12, and 13 to kind of bring us into what Paul says there in 14. So just to set the background, verse 11 See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Uh, the significance of this statement uh, takes us back a little bit earlier into the letter where at a certain point, Paul says to them, he's talking about the, the previous affection they had for him and he's expressing you know, sadness really that they've, they've lost that affection because of the influence of the false teachers. But, but back there, he said to them, regarding the affection that they had for him, they said, you know, or he, he said, when I was among you, he said, um, and, and you saw the trial that was in my flesh. So he's, he seems to be talking about a, a physical infirmity, which we know he had one because he mentioned that in other places. But he says, if it were possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So as a result of that, Bible expositors have... Um, speculated that it was a chronic uh, eye condition, disease that, that Paul suffered with, one of, the, one of the things that he suffered with. And so the significance of verse 11 is that because of this infirmity, normally Paul wouldn't write his own letters, he would dictate them. And yet on this occasion, he says he wrote it with his own hand and the the point of saying that is to, to get them to understand the deep affection that he has for them. And despite the fact that they've sort of shunned him, that they've uh, bought into you know, lies about him, and they've kind of thrown in their uh, hat with these false teachers, Paul's love for them is such that he writes this letter, he pleads with them, he seeks to correct them, but he does it all... Um, Despite his infirmity, he, he writes it in his own hand. So uh, that's probably what uh, is, is being communicated here when he speaks of writing the letter with his own hand. Now, the problem, as we've seen many times before, but Paul continues to address it right to the very end, is the influence of these false teachers. Uh, they have come in presenting themselves as uh, more spiritual than Paul, more knowledgeable than Paul, more concerned and loving than Paul. Uh, but what Paul's going to remind them of or, or kind of give them insight into right now is that these false teachers are really motivated by nothing other than their own self-centeredness. That's really the, the driving force behind everything that they're doing. And so he pretty much communicates that in verses 12 through 
uh, 13, where he says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they might boast in your flesh. So he says two things. Verse, verse 12, uh, they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. The false teachers were motivated by the desire for people to think that they were spiritually and morally superior to everyone else. That was what was driving them. And also, they wanted to have as many followers as they uh, could so they could boast in their own popularity. So Paul is showing here in these final verses as he's already you know, pushed back strongly against their teaching and uh, corrected their mistaken understanding. Now he's just really more dealing with them personally and what, what's really driving them. And again, he says they're, they're being driven by personal glory. They are, are seeking um, their own glory rather than the glory of Christ. Now, verse 14, where we're going to focus our attention today, uh, here Paul contrasts himself with them. So they're, they're looking uh, to promote themselves and glorify themselves. Paul says, but God forbid that I should glory or that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the, the thing that was driving them ultimately was pride. And that was the, the, the basis for their seeking, uh, you know, self-glory uh, and, and so forth. And, and pride is always sort of the root of all of the problems that, that we have. Um, Pride, of course, was the original sin. Pride is how uh, the devil became the devil. According to the Bible, the person that we call the devil or Satan was at one time uh, a glorious uh, creature who was submitted to God and living for the glory of God. But at a certain point, his pride got the better of him and he was cast out of heaven and he became the devil. So pride is the problem. You kill pride and you kill a ton of problems. You actually kill most problems. And, and the way to kill pride is to recognize that we have really nothing to be proud of. There's only one thing that we should be boasting about, and that's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where Paul was. Now, now it's interesting because Paul, even more so than these false teachers, Paul actually did have many things to boast in. He could have, if he wanted to put his confidence in other things, he was a guy who really had the past credentials, the past experience to be able to do it. The, the false teachers were, were not only false teachers, but they were phonies. They came along presenting uh, that they were special in Jerusalem, that they had a cl close connection with the uh, the, the chief apostles from Jerusalem, they came on sort of presenting themselves as experts in the law. Uh, none of that was true of them. All of that was actually true of Paul. But he never, he never brought any of that stuff up because when Paul went to Galatia to preach the gospel, his, 
his objective was to preach Christ and get them to trust in Christ, not to preach himself and get them to trust in him. The false teachers were just the opposite. So as a result of, of having to defend his apostleship, he, he finally does you know, tell them certain things about himself, his relationship with the other apostles, his background in Judaism, his uh, authority to speak on the topic. Uh, he does all of that throughout the epistle. And he could have, as I said, he could have boasted in many things. Let me just give you a few examples of what he could have boasted in. Uh, number one, Paul was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizenship was a huge thing in uh, that time. Of course, Rome was the, the world empire, and to be a citizen of Rome was very special. Uh, the, the, the number of citizens were, was relatively small. People were subjects of the Roman empire, but there were very few people who were citizens of Rome in comparison. And so Paul could have boasted in the fact that he had Roman citizenship. In some cases, Roman citizenship was, it was so coveted, people would, uh, you know, uh, wouldn't spare life and limb to try to attain to Roman citizenship. But Paul was actually born a Roman citizen. In the book of Acts, in the, I think it's about chapter 21, or 22, where Paul is, uh, he's preaching in Jerusalem, he's arrested because his preaching results in a riot, and um, they're trying to ascertain what, what it was that caused the problem. So they were going to take Paul and they were going to publicly flog him. They were going to beat him. And yet uh, the person that was going to administer the beating found out that Paul was a Roman citizen. So he went back to his superiors and said, hey, we need to be careful about this guy because he's a Roman citizen. And so then the captain came in and said to Paul, he said, so you're a Roman citizen, huh? And the captain said this, he said, I, with, with a great sum of money, purchased my citizenship. And Paul says to him in response, I was born a citizen. So that was a pretty significant thing, something certainly that Paul could have boasted in. But not only was he a Roman citizen, he was a cultured person. He came from one of the most significant uh, parts of the empire, one of the great cities of the Roman Empire, the city of Tarsus, uh, one of the you know, handful of the, the major cultural centers and you know, centers of Roman life and so forth, Tarsus. Uh, that's where Paul had originally come from. So he had that background there. Uh, we know that Paul was multilingual. Uh, he was also uh, a university trained. He was a doctor of theology. Uh, in the Jewish context, he was at the, the apex uh, of Judaism by being uh, one of the key religious figures of his day. He was a part of a, a, of a spiritually elite group called the Pharisees. There were only about 600 Pharisees. Paul was one of them. And not only was Paul a Pharisee, but he came from a line of Pharisees. His father was a Pharisee as well, and perhaps even his grandfather. And then it's likely that Paul also was a member of the, of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which would have been the, um, another elite group of 70 members, kind of like the, would have been equivalent to like the Senate. So this is who Paul was. And so you could understand that he might find it uh, relatively easy to boast about these things. 
uh, to sort of point to these things as uh, means of legitimizing his message, uh, uh, of proving his importance and things like that, but he never did. He refused to do that. As a matter of fact, in writing to the Philippians who had also been um, not, they, they weren't seduced like the Galatians were, but there was an attempt by these same kind of false teachers to lead the Philippians astray. Paul had to give a similar defense, but to them, he said, concerning the things that were gained to me, he's talking about his previous uh, life in Judaism and his position. Concerning the things that were gained to me, he says, I count them lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count it all as rubbish. So for Paul, none of this stuff mattered. And, and listen, this is important to think about because this is the kind of stuff that really everybody is hung up on today, not just back in the first century. These are the kinds of things that people boast in. These are the types of things that people are, are looking for as their, you know, this is their identity and this is therefore their significance. Uh, and we'll look in detail at that in a moment. But um, again, Paul refused to boast in that. He said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that also is a really radical statement, especially in that time. It doesn't strike us as radically as it probably should because we're so far removed from uh, the cross in that context. So for us today, after 2,000 years of church history and after becoming very familiar with crosses that are, you know, jewelry or that are symbols of... Uh, you know, the Christian faith or a church or something like that. that. That's, when we think of a cross, that's really just what we think of, right? But in Paul's day, the cross was simply an instrument of execution. That, that's, that's all it was. So if you think about glorying in the cross, this was something that was so just completely out of uh, bounds for, for what... Nobody would ever think that you would glory in the cross or more specifically that your hope or your confidence would be put in a man that was crucified because the people that were crucified were criminals. And the cross was such a, 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 a contemptible way to die. Anybody who died on a cross was just held in extreme contempt because the cross was reserved for the worst criminals. The Roman statesman Cicero said regarding the cross, he said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. So here Paul is talking about boasting in the cross, glorying in the cross. This is my, this is, Paul is saying, this is where my identity is. This is where my significance is. And, and that was radical in those days. In his letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthians were the uh, intellectuals. They were the Greeks. Um, and Paul writes about the cross to them. He said, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He said, for the, for 
the Greeks seek wisdom and the Jews, uh, they're looking for a sign. So the cross to the Jew is a stumbling block and to the Greek, it's foolishness. So when Paul went about this, this Greek-influenced world, and remember, the Greeks were the ones who brought us philosophy. Uh, when Paul went about that Greek-speaking world, talking about the hope of the world, the salvation of the world is based on a guy who died on a cross, a Jew who died on a cross, no less. That was just utterly contemptible to people. And it was so contemptible that even people like these Judaizers who were claiming some sort of allegiance to the cross, they were downplaying the significance of it and they were putting something else above it because they felt the contempt themselves. And so, yes, the cross had a place, but of course they had their own righteousness that they could contribute as well. So when Paul says he boasted, you can see how radical a statement that was. But why did Paul boast in the cross and nothing else? Why did he refuse, even though he had opportunity to boast in a number of different things as we've seen, why did he boast in the cross? Because Paul understood the cross. And when we understand the cross for what it really is, then we will boast in the cross. And we will recognize the folly of boasting in anything else. So what did Paul know? Well, Paul knew what we all need to realize, if we haven't already, that all of the problems in the world are traced back to the issue of sin. All of the problems in the world, from the beginning of time to the end of time, as we look at the world and as people are perplexed and trying to figure out you know, why things are the way they are and why, why all the trouble and the misery and the suffering and the wars and what, whatever else you want to lump in there, why all of this? Well, the Bible says sin is the problem. And Paul understood that, but he understood that it was the cross that dealt with sin. And so Paul understood that the cross was the answer to all of the problems that human beings face. He understood that the death of Jesus on the cross dealt the death blow to sin. And so all that sin had done to ruin our lives was dealt with at the cross. Paul understood that sin has permeated every aspect of our lives as human beings, that it has uh, affected us physically. Of course, the Bible teaches that disease and ultimately death are connected to sin. Uh, the Bible teaches that our inability to see things correctly. Uh, spiritual blindness is due to sin. Uh, the Bible teaches that our, um, our inability to discern between right and wrong, truth and error, the, the compromising of our um, conscience and all of that has, has occurred through sin. And the, the Bible tells us that our wills are, are, are bound up because of sin. And then ultimately, again, sin and death are connected to one another. And so Paul says he's boasting in the cross. That's indirectly what he's saying, right? That he's not going to boast anything but the cross. And he did so, first of all, because he understood that it was through the cross that the, the enemies of sin and death were overthrown. 
And when we understand that that's how the, the human predicament is dealt with, it's not through philosophy, it's not through politics, it's not through um, whatever other thing that human beings have tried to fix the problem with, it, it happens through the cross. Paul understood the glory of the cross in that it was the solution to all of man's problems. And ultimately, again, uh, to death as well. I, I came across a, a video um, recently, uh, a video interview of um, the lead singer for the band U2, Bono. And uh, he's been doing a series, he did an interview with some theologians about the Psalms. He's very interested in the Psalms. And so he's done some interviews with uh, theologians about that the subject of the Psalms, but I watched this one yesterday, just a, a little clip, a couple of minutes, and uh, Bono's telling the story of how his mother died when he was 14, how he had this, this like weight, this sort of shadow, this kind of fear of death that just sort of lingered over his life for many, many years until he came to understand that Christ had dealt with that. And, and he just tells a story of going, taking a visit to Jerusalem and going to Golgotha, going to the place where Jesus was crucified. And he said, when I went to the place where death died, the fear, the, the, the angst of death just lifted off of me. And I thought, remember, as we had that theme for Easter, the death of death, that's, that's what we're talking about. That, so Paul is boasting in the cross because it was there at the cross that death was defeated. It was there at the cross that death died. And the power of sin was broken. So our lives uh, do not have to be under the tyranny of sin as they once were. So that's one. Secondly, the cross, Paul knew that it was the love of God that was ultimately shown at the cross. Or the cross was the place where God's love was ultimately shown. The religion of Jesus Christ is the only religion in the world that clearly presents God as a God of love. Did you know that? It's interesting because religious people will talk about a God of love, but know this, whenever a person who's not a Christian talks about a God of love, they are actually borrowing from the Christian faith because other religions do not teach that God is love in his very essence, and certainly they don't have any uh, example to point to historically uh, that would prove that God is love. So there's just this assumption by people that, that God is love. Years ago, I was in Eastern Europe. Uh, this is back in the, in the 80s, and it was back um, when, you know, the... Um, Communism and, and all of that was just sort of beginning to uh, implode. And so the, these young people had been brought up in a communist system. And their, their interest in spiritual things had to do with black magic and things of, of that nature. And, and I never, I'll never forget having a conversation with one young woman and, and talking to her about Christ, talking to her about God, and of course, talking about the Bible. And she pretty aggressively said to me, you know, don't talk to me about the Bible or God or your God. I don't want to hear that. I don't believe in that God. I just believe in a God of love. That's what she said. And I said, well, where did you ever get the idea that God was love? She said, oh, everybody knows that. I said, well, as a matter of fact, everybody doesn't know that. 
I said, and, and as another matter of fact, the only place you can find that God is a God of love is in the Bible that you're telling me not to talk to you about. So, you know, we had a good conversation after that, but, <laughs> but that's the truth. And Paul understood that, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Paul saw the cross as the ultimate display of God's love. And it certainly was, wasn't it? Because Jesus said, greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's what happened at the cross. So Paul understood that. So he's not going to glory in anything but that. Paul also understood that the cross is the means by which we can finally have access to God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom. That's the cross. He's the one mediator, and he mediates because he paid the price for us to be able to have access to God. And so Paul understood that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The cross is also the place where the God-required righteousness was provided. And Paul understood this, and he wrote extensively about it. But you see, the Bible teaches us that we cannot access God because of our sin. And in order to be in God's presence, you have to have a, a righteousness. And it's actually a perfect righteousness. The problem is we don't have a perfect righteousness. So what is the solution? Well, the cross is the solution because it was at the cross that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become the sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness that God requires in him. That's what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5. And so, again, these are all of the things that the apostle understood. And he also finally understood that the cross is where Satan was defeated. Now, man has basically two problems, sin and Satan. And those, those two things work hand in hand. Remember, Satan is the one who introduced sin into the human family. Man was created righteous. He was, man was not originally a sinner. Man was created in fellowship with God. How did sin enter in? It was brought in by the devil, by Satan. But yet it was at the cross that Satan was finally defeated. Jesus said just before going to the cross, he said, now the prince of this world is judged. Now the prince of this world is cast out. And then Paul will write to the Colossians later and say uh, that God, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So when Paul says, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross, he said that because he understood that the cross, and of course, we, when we say the cross, we're talking about Christ and his death, that this is the central act of, of all time. This is, the, this is the thing that matters. And nothing else in comparison to it matters. This is the, the turning point for time and eternity. So the, the false teachers are 
looking to um, promote themselves, ultimately. They're, they're boasting in themselves. They're glorying in themselves. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory except in anything but the cross. The question for us is, where are we? Are we with the, the Judaizers or are we with Paul? Are, are we inclined to boast in our personal attainments or our, you know, some, some thing that we are or perceive ourselves to be or have done? Or are we reserving all of our boasting? Because, again, we know this, that human nature hasn't changed. These are still the same issues that we face today. Think of it. People are... Uh, and, and when I'm saying glorying here or boasting in, putting your confidence in, the idea is that this is where you derive your significance. This is where you see yourself as, um, you know, superior to others maybe, or this is the basis upon which you see yourself acceptable to God. What are the things that people are um, leaning on? The same things they always have been. Ethnicity. Some people see themselves as uh, superior to others ethnically. And sometimes they even translate that over uh, to a mentality that, well, of course, you know, we're the favored race. Uh, of course, the Jews did this, probably more so than anybody. Um, not, not exclusively, but they, they certainly did this. They saw themselves as superior to the, Gentile, the Gentiles. The other nations were uh, less acceptable to God in the Jewish mind than they were. So they had put their ethnicity above everything else. And people, of course, do that today. That's still a, a massive problem all around the world. You know, it's funny too, um, you know, as you travel and you meet different peoples and so forth. And, you know, sometimes you think this stuff is just sort of maybe limited to your own culture or your kind of experiences. But then you go around and you find that um, th this is just all over the place. You know, you, you go with one group of people and uh, because their culture is maybe similar to another group of people across the border, you think that there's some kind of uh, camaraderie or brotherhood, camaraderie or brotherhood, and then you find out, no, actually, the, these two people hate each other. These two people groups hate each other, and one, of course, thinks they're better than the other. The other thinks they're better than the other. This is just the way the world is, isn't it? So you've got that, race, ethnicity. You've got nationality, which is similar but different. Uh, you've got culture. And, and, of course, there are a lot of people that, um, you know, just culturally, they, they uh, see themselves as superior to others. Sometimes it has to do with, with where you live. And, you know, you look at your uh, community and, and the culture that's there in your community as superior to this other, other group over here. You know, it's, it's, it's not unknown that we have a cultural elite in our own country and there are certain people in certain locations that they absolutely despise simply because of where they live and what that stands for culturally. So this is the human 
condition, right? Education, some people are, because of their education, they see themselves as superior. And in some cases, they translate that over to, well, you know, surely I'm accepted by God because after all, I'm intelligent and I'm educated. And uh, so it's intellect, it's wisdom, sometimes it's talents. People are putting their confidence in their talents. They're putting their confidence in the way they look, their appearance. They, they look down on other people because they are not seen as being as uh, attractive. Um, of, of course, wealth is another huge uh, dividing factor, social status, physical strength. See, these are all the things that people have always put their confidence in and are still doing so today. This isn't a new problem, is it? All the way back in the days of Jeremiah, the Lord spoke through Jeremiah, the prophet, and he said this. He said, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories or boast, let him glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. See, this, this, this thing of human boasting in all the wrong things is a problem from beginning to end. All the way back in the time of Jeremiah, God says, you want to boast? This is what to boast about. Boast that you know me. That, that's, that's all that you uh, legitimately can boast about. And that's what Paul's saying all that he could legitimately boast about, even though there were other things, Paul saw the, the world through the correct lens. And so he understood that boasting was to only be in Christ. Now, these things, our, our position, our, our you know, financial status, those kinds of things, I mean, you know, they, they might have some benefit in the present life, of giving you certain advantages and so forth. But what we have to understand is none of this means anything to God. You know, God certainly is not impressed with human achievement and those kinds of things. Nobody's going to come before God and say, uh, well, you know, Lord, I had a, I was the head of a large corporation and I worked my way up and I was the CEO. And by the way, did you see that jet that I used to fly around in? You know, it was pretty impressive. And, you know, a lot of people worked for me. A lot of people, you know, I could just command them to do, you know, that, that means zilch means nothing. There's only one thing that matters at the end and that's Christ and him receiving the glory. God said that he, uh, his glory would fill the earth, not my glory, not your glory, not like human glory collectively. So the, the attitude that is the proper attitude, regardless of our station in life, regardless of our privileges or lack of privilege or whatever else, across the board, our attitude is to be the attitude of the Apostle Paul here. God forbid that I should glory in anything except in the cross. If we're going to be proud, which we have an inclination to do, obviously, then let's make sure our pride is directed in the right direction. We're proud of the Lord. We're proud of what he's done for us. It's not a pride 
in ourselves. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Christ. What does this glorying look like? So, so how do we, how, how does this present itself? Or how, how are people going to know that we're glorying not in ourselves, but in Christ. What, what, what are the, um, the, the marks of a person like Paul here? Well, first of all, there is obviously going to be humility. A person who glories in Christ is a person who's humble. It's a person who is not into self-promotion, but is really ultimately just into the promotion of Christ. It's a person whose mentality is, I'm nothing but a sinner saved by grace. Now, I was just talking about, you know, the attitudes of people all around, uh, you know, throughout time and so forth. But let's put this in our own context of Christians. And let's recognize that we are not exempt, obviously, from glorying in the wrong things which the root of that is pride, which then creates all kinds of problems. And think about this for a moment. If we, like I said earlier, if we deal with pride, we deal with a problem. If we kill pride, we kill the problem. As long as we allow pride to reside in our breast, we are going to always be a problem. We will always be. So there, there has to come this genuine humility, but the genuine humility comes by the recognition that I am just a sinner saved by grace. Now, we've all heard the stories about uh, even pastors who, uh, you know, maybe they have become well-known and they pastor large congregations and so forth. And then we hear the story of how they fell into adultery or they, uh, you know, absconded with the funds or something like that. And, you know, the question is always like, how does that happen? Well, you know how it happens? I can tell you right now. It happens, those things, the adultery, the, the greed manifesting itself in, you know, embezzlement or whatever, those are a symptom. They're not really the problem. You see, before that happens, something else happens. Pride sets in. And that person forgets that they're only in the position they're in by the grace of God. They only do what they do because God appointed them to do that. And then they forget that. And we've got, you know, there's so many examples of this in history. Uh, Going back to the Old Testament period, you've got King Saul, for example. King Saul, God takes him, he's humble, he makes him the king, and then it all goes to his head, and then he becomes just a lunatic, and he creates all kinds of problems for the kingdom, and he's trying to kill the heir and even his own son, and you know, what, what is the problem? Well, God says what the problem was. He says to Saul, when you were small in your own eyes, I made you king. <laughs> and what happened? He was originally humble, but he became lifted up with pride. And, of course, David had a fall not, you know, as severe as Saul's because David repented, but it was a similar thing. God said to David after his sin with Bathsheba, he said, you know, I took you from following the sheep. You were just a humble young man, and I exalted you, and now look what's happened. So 
So pride is the problem. So humility is the solution, but humility isn't something that we can, you know, make happen. Humility is the natural response of recognizing that I am simply a sinner saved by grace. And that whatever it is that I have, I have by the grace of God. Whatever it is I am, I am by the grace of God. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. Because you know what? When you're approaching humility by trying to think less of yourself, what are you doing? You're thinking of yourself. (laughs) I can think less of myself. I'm terrible. I'm miserable. I'm, you know, stupid. I'm, you know, but, it, but it's all the self. C.S. Lewis said, no, humility is just thinking of yourself less. Just forget yourself. Get yourself out of the picture. How do I get myself out of the picture? I'm so much in the picture. <laughs> and of course, as Pastor Chuck used to remind us, when you look at a group picture, who are you looking for? <laughs> and when you see the group picture, you either love it or hate it, depending on what? how you looked in the picture. This is a terrible picture. Oh, I think this picture is great. No, it's really bad. It's terrible. Well, why is it so bad? Well, look at me. Look how stupid I look. (laughs) We all are like that, right? How do we get rid of that? It's so ingrained in us. How do we get rid of it? Well, of course, it's the work of the spirit, but practically it's, we just, we're, we're, it's about Christ. It's not about us. I'm glorying in the cross of Christ. That's my only place to boast. That's my only confidence. In the end, it's my only significance. So number one, humility. Secondly, selfless surrender to Christ. That's what glorying in the cross looks like. Selfless surrender to Christ. I'm I'm just giving. My my life belongs to Christ. It It no longer belongs to me. Paul put it this way. He said, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. He, and, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The false teachers in Galatia lived for themselves. It was all in the end about them being seen as popular, being seen as spiritual, being seen as moral, being seen as superior. So if we are living lives where we're glorying in Christ, then we've given up on all of that. And our primary objective is the glory of Christ. I want Christ to be glorified. You know, back in the 18th century, what is called historically now the 18th century revival, this great outpouring of God's spirit that took place in beginning in England, there were a number of leading figures in that, but there were two notable men, one named John Wesley, one named George Whitfield. And Wesley was, uh, he was a good man, but he was, you know, he was given to kind of self-promotion and things. And, you know, he was uh, very um, capable man and he, he wrote and he put together uh, um, you know, very specific strategy for gospel outreach and, and ministry. And, he, you know, he was the founder of the Methodist movement and all of that. Um, but then there was George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was 
uh, probably in one sense, the more gifted person because he was an amazing communicator. He was very eloquent. And just even people who never came to faith would come to listen to him. Benjamin Franklin, for example, would come and just listen to George Whitfield preach because he was such a master uh, communicator. And anyway, toward the end of Whitfield's life, his friends who loved him dearly, they really tried to push him to make more of a name for himself. It's like, you know, you're a great man. God's used you very extraordinarily. We need to kind of perpetuate your, your legacy. And they, they pressed him on it. And Whitfield said this. He said, let the name of Christ be exalted and let the name of Whitfield perish. See, he had no ambition to do that because he was in the end doing what Paul said. He was glorying in the Christ. He wasn't living for himself. He was glorying in the cross. And then thirdly and finally, this is going to show itself in love. God demonstrated his own love toward us, as we've already mentioned. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, greater love is no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Love for God, love for his people, love for the lost in the world. Those are all the things that are going to come as a result of us glorying in Christ and in the cross and not in ourselves. And if I'm lacking love, if I'm lacking love for God, then it's obvious that I'm, I'm not glorying in the cross. I'm not seeing the cross for, for what it really is. If I'm lacking love for my fellow believers, then it's obvious that I'm, uh, there's something more about myself that I'm concerned with than, than with them. And you know, so much of the division that exists in the church of Jesus Christ is, is due to this whole thing of, of pride and selfish ambition and self-exaltation. And, and, you know, I don't want this person to get any recognition because that takes recognition away from me. You know, among pastors, there's a, a thing. It's an unfortunate thing, but... Uh, we just kind of refer to it as territorialism. So, you know, there's kind of like, I, I've got my territory staked out. So listen, don't come into my turf uh, because this is, this is my area. And all of the people here are, you know, I'm going to be the one to reach them. So if another church comes into my territory, another pastor, then I don't like that. And I don't like that person. And I got to say, you know, snide things about them. And I got to be critical of them. And I got to find some reason why they're illegitimate. And even if somebody comes with a great report about what God's doing, you're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, you don't know what I know. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, you know, I know some things. This is a, like an epidemic in the church. What does it derive from? It's derived from pride. And why is that pride there? Because people aren't looking and glorying in the cross alone. If I'm glorying in the cross, I'm just going to be thankful that more people are believing in Jesus. Whether they come and listen to me or not is not the point. The fact that they are believing in Christ, that's what we want. 
And that is what's going to show itself when we are living this way. And then, of course, when it's people in the world for whom Christ died, who have yet to come, we're going to have that love for them as well. And we're not going to write them off because, and you know, we, we can do this, right? We think of certain people and we think, oh, that guy's so prideful. Oh, those rich people, you know, man, that guy deserves to just go to hell, you know, such a, you know, an obnoxious person anyway, or, you know, we, we can, we can do that, right? It's human nature. It's just the way we are, but the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit with the focus on the cross, that's what changes all of that. Because as I said, you kill the pride, you kill the problem. And the problem is dealt with through the cross. And so if our objective, if our ambition, if our first thing, like Paul's was, is the cross of Christ, Jesus, and his will, his plan, his way, his purpose, if that's the thing that we have at the, at the, the, as the focus of our uh, hearts, then everything else is going to come into place. And that pride that causes those problems on every single level, I'm just mentioning a few levels, but on every level, relationships, personal relationships, family relationships, home, all of those things, it's going to just be dealt with. The cross deals with it. So God help us to have this kind of intentionality that Paul has. He says, God forbid that I should glory except in anything but the cross. And may, may that be our hearts too. God forbid. And when we find ourselves glorying in other things, which we will, there's no doubt about it. Because again, this is the, our condition. But as we find that to be the case, we, we recognize it and we say, wait a second. Oh Lord, God forbid, help me to get my eyes off myself and onto you and your great love demonstrated through the cross. So Lord, help us. We pray to be people like Paul who can say sincerely, God forbid that we would glory except in the cross. And Lord, we're all guilty at times of glorying in other things, even though you've saved us, even though we know in the end we're, we're only what we are because of your grace. Lord, you know, we slip back, our hearts slide back, our minds get sidetracked. We start thinking more of ourselves than we ought to. And Lord, may you just, by your grace, continue to convict us of those things and root these things out of our hearts that we would truly be people who have one objective and that is the glory of Christ, that his name would be exalted. Lord, that our names would diminish, that his name would be extolled. Lord, that 
he would increase and we would decrease. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.